Hello and welcome to another COVID-19 special issue, special edition of Pipettes and Politics. I am Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and we have been doing a series of interviews talking with experts and professionals who are impacted by the COVID-19 experience. Some of them science, some of them policy, some of them just curious conversations that we've been having. So I hope, uh, hope you've been listening and enjoying them. Today, I'm excited to have Bill Sullivan. Bill is a professor at Indiana University School of Medicine and is the author of several books, including Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. Bill, I want to thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Great. Now, Bill, I believe the reason why I got you here is um, in ASBMB Today, um, just a couple of weeks ago, you published or we published an article that you wrote, Why Scientists Are Studying if chloroquine could treat the coronavirus. And so I'm wondering, um, can scientists treat the coronavirus with chloroquine? Well, that seems to be the hot question at the moment. I took to writing that article because uh, in my laboratory, we study a phylum of parasites that includes plasmodium, the causative agent of malaria. And as many people will know, chloroquine was one of the first drugs on the scene that was devised to treat malaria. So I became very interested in the prospect, and um, from, as a pharmacologist, it, it's a mechanism. Why would an old malaria drug be useful against something like a virus? They're very different um, entities. So I was intrigued by that. How how does it work? What is it about chloroquine? And, and I'm going to ask a really layman question. It, it, you know, I guess when I when you hear it talked about, people talk about hydrochloroquine. Is there a difference between chloroquine and hydrochloroquine? Um, how does it work that might make it effective here in coronavirus in the same way that it is effective in, in malaria? Yeah, I'm going to use those two terms synonymously. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, it's a good question. They're very similar. They're just a minor chemical change in the hydroxychloroquine. That's a derivative of it. So it's a newer generation of it. And it was devised to be a little less toxic than the initial chloroquine. Um, so the mechanism of action against the malaria parasite and the virus have some common themes. So real briefly, let me tell you how it kills the malaria parasite. And then I'll explain the various schools of thought on how it's um, acting on the coronavirus. So the, the plasmodium parasite, which causes malaria, um, the mechanism of action against this parasite is related to the ability of this drug to concentrate in acidic compartments of the cell. This includes a variety of organelles, vesicles, and in the case of plasmodium, it includes its food vacuole where it digests hemoglobin when it's inside red blood cells. So the, when you digest hemoglobin, when the parasite does this, it generates a toxic byproduct called heme. And the parasite has engineered a clever way to get rid of this heme by stacking it into crystals. These crystals are called hemozoan. But if chloroquine is bound to the heme, like I said, it concentrates in the food vacuole where this takes place. If chloroquine binds to that heme, 
the parasite cannot form hemozoans and it ends up dying in its own waste. That's how it works against malaria. So obviously viruses don't digest hemoglobin. They don't generate toxic heme products. So where it comes into, where the commonality lies is the fact that this drug as a chemical is a weak base. And when it gets inside of these acidic compartments, it raises the pH. And this is going to have a number of effects on the virus because the virus is hijacking our cells in order to replicate itself. It is using our cellular components, our cellular machinery, and when those um, compartments become uh, um, less acidified, the pH changes, proteins get processed in a different way. So if all that's clear, I'm going to now explain the three schools of thought on how this drug might be killing coronavirus. Go for it. I'm ready. Okay. So there's, there's three ways, and they're not mutually exclusive. When we um, change the pH of these intracellular compartments, it, it leads to an altered processing of a receptor called ACE2. Now, ACE2 is present on the lung epithelium, and it normally regulates blood pressure, but it's also the entry point for uh, the COVID-19 virus. So if this receptor gets modified because the pH changes in these compartments that put the receptor on the host cell, the virus can no longer bind to it, and it's going to have trouble getting inside. So infection is thwarted right at the get-go. That's one um, uh, a theory for which there's a little evidence for. The second one is that new viruses can't be made because their proteins are unstable in these vesicles when the pH changes. So when chloroquine gets into those vesicles and raises the pH, the virus proteins kind of melt. Uh, they become destabilized, and they can't build new viruses. And then finally, the uh, last school of thought on how this might be working relates to this drug's ability to calm the immune system down. Uh, you and some of your listeners may be aware that one of the major problems of COVID-19 is that in some people, for reasons we don't understand, their immune system goes haywire, and this virus induces a very potent inflammatory response. Chloroquine changes the pH of vesicles that carry immune system proteins called cytokines that lead to this dramatic inflammatory response. So um, the final theory is that chloroquine can rein in the immune system and bring down what's called the cytokine storm. So is the, really the, at a very basic level, what happens, chloroquine changes the pH at the very point that the COVID-19 virus impacts and really affects a cell. And so by making the environment essentially no longer hospitable to the virus, is that fair? Yes, I think that's a really good summary of how it might be working. And that's an encouraging mechanism of action because it's actually acting on the host cell. You know, the, the, uh, basically the, the room that the virus has hijacked in order to replicate itself, which means it's probably going to be hard for the virus to mutate and become resistant to chloroquine since it's not acting on the virus directly. It's acting on the host cell, at least according to the theories we currently have. Now, in, I, in reading your piece in A Today, I think one of the things that I found was 
there is evidence of this working in previous SARS outbreaks. Is that correct? To the best of my knowledge, chloroquine was not used against SARS-1 during the outbreak of 2003. The first report I'm aware of that suggested it had in vitro activity against SARS came in 2004. So obviously the initial outbreak of 2003 uh, created a, a motivation to do more research into compounds that could serve as novel antivirals. And chloroquine was one of them uh, because there's been rumblings that it had uh, antiviral activity against a number of other viruses. But it was shown in 2004 in a laboratory setting, just in test tubes, that it had activity. It also had activity against influenza H5N1 in cultured cells. But it's important to note that it failed in a clinical trial against influenza in 2011. So the bottom line, prior to COVID-19, uh, no viral infection has been successfully treated by chloroquine in humans. Got it. So the, the key component there is that it was, there was promising research done in vitro, but not in vivo. That's correct. There might have been a few animal studies usually done in mice, but again, that's not the same as having the result in humans. So um, there's a really solid rationale that I think excites scientists and doctors, but the hard data that we need from rigorous clinical trials is not in place yet. It's underway, uh, but it's it's too early. People are jumping the gun with respect to what chloroquine may or may not be able to do in the context of this virus. Right, and, and before I ask you a question that's related to that, what are the side effects of chloroquine on, on the patient? Yeah, this is another semi-controversial subject because it, I'm, I'm learning, I've been teaching about this drug for 20 years. And I tell my med students straight what comes out of a pharmacology textbook. Chloroquine is a well-tolerated drug. It's been given to millions of people to fight off malaria. Um, so it's well-tolerated. But the important thing to emphasize, it's well-tolerated at therapeutic doses. The, the tricky part about chloroquine, and this applies to hydroxychloroquine as well, it has a very narrow window of safety. And this is why some people say it's not so safe. It's really easy to overdose um, if you're not following the directions very carefully. And one of the main um, problems in an overdose is heart arrhythmia. So it's, this drug is contraindicated in a number of patients as well. So that's why some physicians are hesitant to unleash it on the general public. It's contraindicated in people who have seizures, people who have uh, a metabolic condition called G6PD deficiency. It's a problem in psoriasis patients, and it also causes problems in patients with myasthenia gravis. So it's not benign by any means, but we don't want people to be misled in thinking that this is a highly dangerous drug. By and large, for your normal healthy adult, this is a reasonably safe drug to take as long as it's taken exactly as uh, doctors recommend. So the other thing that we should emphasize here is that as this drug might go out en masse towards more people, especially those with pre-existing conditions or who might be on other medications, particularly those for heart conditions or any other drug that prolongs the QTC interval, 
this is what's going to lead to the potential cardiac toxicity and potentially fatal uh, heart arrhythmias. So it, it's, it's hard to summarize all of this, but historically speaking, this is a well-tolerated drug. That's what any pharmac pharmacology textbook will tell you, but it's not completely benign. And we do need to be careful uh, administering this, especially on a population that may have underlying conditions or may have maybe taking drugs that are going to uh, dangerously interact with chloroquine. And so what, one of the things that you're pointing out, and I think this is maybe why we get, you know, if you're a consumer of news from a variety of sources, you get a, a million different responses to the, the potential that hydroxychloroquine can have. And, and I've heard everything from, you know, watching a doctor um, on the news say that there is absolutely no, that there is a modic, uh, a modest impact that it can have on a patient outcome. And we're not even sure whether uh, the chloroquine or some other aspect provided that modest positive outcome to, you know, the president saying you have nothing to lose to take it, just take it. And, you know, th there's, there's not a risk there. So the devil is ultimately in the details here. And that's, there is, I guess, on the surface, scientific promise and this reasonable thinking that says this should work, but we don't yet have the scientific evidence to support and back that up. Yeah, if I could just unpack a little bit more of what you said, you hit on some really good points. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Depending on who's talking in the media, they're cherry-picking observations to make their case. And as in many other situations, it's much more complicated than what people are portraying. So this, this, this drug is well-tolerated in most cases, but it has some uh, potential adverse effects, which I've highlighted already, that we cannot ignore. So to say that you've got nothing to lose is very misleading. Uh, if you are listed in any of the contraindications that I that I've mentioned, you know, if you have ep epilepsy or seizures of any kind, you do have something to lose. This could be a very dangerous situation. If you're on medications that prolong the QTC interval, you do have something to lose. You could suffer a potentially fatal arrhythmia. Um, so it, it's not completely benign, and we don't want to lose the point that this drug might not work. It might have little to no effect. Uh, there's a solid rationale. There's some preliminary data uh, existing in, in the laboratory setting. And depending on which clinical trial you look at, it supports its use in people. Some clinical trials say that it works. Some do not. So we have mixed results. And this probably stems from the fact that the patient populations are very small right now. We need larger, more rigorous clinical trials before we form a definitive conclusion as to whether it works or not. And there's a lot of um, differences between these trials that probably explain why we're seeing it work in one instance and not work in another. One of the key ones that I think is when the drug is administered. Most antivirals, including Tamiflu, which people take for influenza, they don't work very well if you give them two days after the infection. Because the viremia, the virus load, is just too high for the drug to do anything. So that may very well be the case for chloroquine as well. If you give it early enough, it may have an effect. How much of an effect we, it remains to be determined. But if you give it to a very sick patient, 
it's probably not going to do too much. We've seen that historically with other antivirals as well. So that wouldn't be terribly surprising. The other concern that I have is that people might get complacent and stop social distancing if they think that there's a treatment out there. And uh, we can't uh, discourage people from adhering to the, to the rules and the guidelines that the CDC has outlined that really are our only defense right now. The importance of social distancing, washing our hands, and not touching our face, and so on. Uh, those are the um, things that we cannot ignore, you know, thinking that there is a, a, a potential treatment out there. And we don't want to deprive people who have an established medical need for chloroquine. We can't deprive them from their medication. Like we said before, chloroquine is used for malaria, but it's also used for arthritis and lupus because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And uh, we, we can't deny people their medication for a legitimate medical need, for one hypothetical medical need. And then finally, we don't want people self-medicating. I think everyone is probably familiar with that gentleman who um, took, uh, I, I think, an aquarium cleaner because it listed chloroquine as an ingredient. And he took this oh, gosh. as a preventative uh, because he heard it on TV, right? And um, he, he died from that. Uh, he, it was a fatal overdose or maybe something else in the cleaner that killed him. So we, we, we can't be too loosey-goosey with this information and plant seeds in people's ideas that they need to go get chloroquine now and take it. That That's the wrong impression to give here. Is it fair to say that we know a fair amount about, we know a fair amount about chloroquine, about how it works, and theoretically how it could work to help in COVID-19 patients. However, there's more that we don't know than what we do know right now. Particularly with its mechanism on viruses, coronavirus, yes, I think that's a very valid statement. How, um, how do we go, how do we move forward? What's, I, I guess my question is, is the need is immediate or, or the desire for a therapeutic is immediate. Uh, clinical trials typically take a very long time to, to do, you know, from a, to go from a phase one to a phase two to a phase three. How do you as a scientist balance the kind of societal need and desire with the need to be scientifically accurate and efficient to determine the efficacy of the therapeutic and the treatment? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. These are unprecedented times. So scientists, physicians, and policymakers are all struggling with these issues. Normally, we would like the science to be rigorous. We would like to take the time to make sure the results are reproducible and that they apply to everybody with minimal side effects. But we're under very strange times, and we uh, were ill-prepared uh, for this uh, pandemic. And we're paying the price for that. Um, and so it's an emergency situation. And there's been um, quite a few rollbacks of critical regulations that are normally put into place to ensure that we have a drug development pipeline that not only is rigorous, but it's going to be safe uh, for patients um, when we get to the end of it. So some of that is being abandoned right now. And I'm sympathetic to the reasons why uh, people are people are dying. Uh, so I, I sympathize with how quickly we need to develop something. 
And um, science just doesn't work like that. It takes time. Drug development is one of the hardest things that humans can ever endeavor to accomplish. Um, just because most of our guesses are wrong, what we see in the laboratory or what we see in animals sometimes doesn't pan out when we put these drugs into humans. Uh, and then we are always dealing with resistance issues. Pathogens can evolve very quickly, much faster than we can come up with new drugs. So it's, it's always an arms race trying to keep up with these pathogens. And um, I think at the end of the day, what I hope we can learn from this disaster is that we cannot get complacent when it comes to infectious disease. Scientists have been screaming about this for decades, but it just falls on deaf ears. We need more funding, more funding, more funding. We can never get complacent about infectious disease. They will return. They will bite us again. And we had better prepare. And this is, you know, so this is SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-3 might be just different enough that all of the things that we use and apply here may not work in the next wave until we know more. That's a difficult question to answer. It depends how much variability there is in the genomes between um, SARS-2 and then the forthcoming SARS-3. Ideally, what we hope to extract from the situation are more lessons learned. We knew this, we know this was a zoonotic transmission, which means it jumped from animals into people. And scientists are still working out the details on exactly how that happened. I think the leading theory is that it came out of bats. That's where a lot of coronaviruses exist. And uh, it probably jumped to humans directly or jumped to humans through yet another animal that became infected. The bottom line is we have to figure out how this happened and uh, develop new, new rules for society to minimize the zoonotic transmission of these deadly diseases. So that's, that's one major takeaway that we can maybe learn from in this experience. And hopefully our world will get a little better at responding to pandemics in the future. Um, I think, you know, all things considered, as, as horrible as this is, the world's doing a reasonably good job. There's a lot of chaos, but I've seen a lot of cooperation between scientists. I wish there was a little more from some countries, but I've seen a great deal of cooperation. There's been expediency in publishing results. People have been taking advantage of the preprint system, which means putting the results out in real time rather than waiting for them to go through the very laborious and time-consuming process of peer review. There's clear advantages to the latter in terms of accuracy. But in cases of emergencies like this, we need to see how science is unfolding in real time. We need to see uh, what lab got a certain result uh, and just take those results with a little bit of a grain of salt because they're not peer-reviewed but they still could be accurate and very important information. What are, and, and, you know, using the preprints in this way is, is maybe an example of this, but a question that I've been asking people that I've had on is in this moment of crisis, um, people are finding innovative ways to do things better or differently or more efficiently than we were doing them before. Are there things that you're seeing? Are there innovations that you've come across that are unique now, but maybe are things we should consider using and utilizing just as kind of the norm going forward. I like to try to find a positive way to, to end an interview. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's a good thing to do. And I'll break it down into two categories. Um, so some of the innovations that I've been seeing, the medical advances, in terms of the medical advances, this plasma therapy is really exciting. Uh, it's kind of an old idea, but it's been rejuvenated and basically involves taking serum from someone who defeated uh, you know, the virus. And they have antibodies in them that are very valuable. And we can give these antibodies to another person. So it's not the most practical thing to do, and you do have to wait for people to become immune before you get that serum. And it's pretty laborious and expensive, but if we could harness that technology and come up with ways maybe in C2 or um, in the laboratory to generate these antibodies, um, you know, through 3D modeling of viral proteins and so on, we could potentially utilize plasma therapy much more effectively. COVID-19 may also help squash the insidious anti-vaccine and maybe even the larger anti-science movement. Uh, a SARS vaccine would confer safe long-term immunity, at least to SARS-2, um, but it's going to take the longest to develop and test. That's the downside of the vaccine approach, but I, I think it's going to maybe convince people who are vaccine hesitant that you know, vaccines are real, they're safe, they work. And then finally, let me go into the category of how I've seen advances in how we conduct research. I already alluded to the fact that I've seen tremendous cooperativity among scientists. I mean, that's been really heartwarming to see because it's usually a kind of a competitive type of business and people keep things close to their chest, you know, until they're ready to publish. But I've seen some really encouraging signs of scientific cooperation. I've also, you know, seen Zoom and other virtual meetings being ramped up and embraced more than uh, ever before. And I think we should continue to take advantage of this. It's better for the environment, it saves time, and it's easy to do. Scientists can attend seminars at other universities, see talks at conferences they can't make, et cetera. I think it's going to be a great tool for the future. And then, as we've already alluded to for, for preprints, uh, we need to update the mechanism of science communication. The, the old pay-to-publish, pay-to-read, wait forever to get your results out there, I think it's outmoded. And it urgently needs to be brought into the modern age. And I hope the lessons of COVID-19 perhaps serve as a catalyst for that change. Well, Bill, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been a really, really terrific interview, and you've been really informative. Um, again, Bill, what's your Twitter handle for people who are listening? It's at WJ Sullivan. Great. So at WJ Sullivan, and we'll put a link to your article um, from A Today on the blog or on the podcast posting. So I want to thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been another edition of Pipettes and Politics. Thank you.